It is good to be back here with you. Um, grateful, so grateful just uh, to be here and just see the grace of God that's at work among you. Um, just so refreshing uh, just to see the, uh, the worship ministry, you know, Nate and the, and the, the, the group this morning. Uh, not only is the music, you know, good, the, the spirit of the, the music, the, the gospel centrality in the music, the Christ-exalting nature of it, just so refreshing. And, and uh, just good to be back here and just see gospel ministry continuing. You know, you have missed a beat. And uh, grateful for Caleb and Mike kind of leading the way there and Nate. And um, just so thankful for the grace of God that is at work in, in the leadership here and among you and, and the love that I've been shown. Um, just a quick update on, on our family we're doing well down there. Um, the kids are acclimating to a whole new culture. Um, I think Jack was born a Southern redneck, so he's, he's doing fine. Um, that kid, I'll tell you, he, I, every night, every single night, it's Blake Shelton, God's Country, one hour loop every night. Um, but he's, he's on the football team for the first time and making friends. And you know, Audrey's, Audrey's already a star on the volleyball team making good friends and, you know, Reese is doing his, his Reese thing and, you know, making one friend at a time and, uh, <laughs> um, but they're, they're doing well. Um, we've enjoyed being part of the church community down there. We've been attending Emmanuel in Nashville, which is uh, just such a beautiful expression of the body of Christ there in, uh, in downtown Nashville, just such a great leadership team. Um, and, and a team that, that has a ministry outside of Emmanuel, you know, you probably, a lot of you probably know a lot of them because they're authors and a lot of speakers and, you know, they're very influential in the body. And it's just great to be right there at the hub and kind of receiving from that ministry. And uh, we're, we're actually praying about um, a formal connection with Emmanuel and the new church plant in Clarksville, which is 45 minutes away from Nashville where we live. Um, as Emmanuel is launching an Emmanuel family of churches, and we just love them so much and so grateful for the, their ministry. Um, that's something we're considering. One of the things that's um, interesting right now, and, I, and I'd like you to be praying for us, is um, there's, a, there's a good possibility that we are going to join with an existing church plant that's down there. Um, there's a brother that I was Zooming with before we ever got there and meeting with once I got there uh, often. And uh, in one of those meetings, he said, hey, you know, they're a two-year-old church plant. He said, we're kind of struggling here uh, alone. Uh, wouldn't it be great if uh, have you thought about, uh, you know, would you pray about it? And I said, I will pray about that. And um, there, there's a good possibility that uh, I might take over that church plant and, he, you know, he'll take a, maybe a different role. Um, and um, we work together, you know, as, as, uh, in plurality as, as elders. And uh, we're just praying about that and, and talking to Emmanuel, you know, and the uh, elder advisor, Scott Thomas, that's uh, you know, somebody that I've been kind of leaning on uh, to give me counsel and coach me, you know, through this process. And um, so be praying about that, because if we joined with them, that would that would accelerate uh, the church plant about two years. They already have a core team. They already have space in the YMCA. Um, they already have a you know small church budget. So there's some resources to work with there, uh, you know, to to do church uh, stuff. So uh, just be praying about that, that God would give us wisdom and just make that obvious so that we could take our steps uh, feeling like we have wisdom and light as we move forward. So thank you for that. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to be in verses 8 through 11 today. The title of my message is Lord of the Broken Heart. 
Lord of the broken heart. Um, pulling in here today was exciting and also heavy. If I'm being honest, the first thing that hit me was the fact that I'm pulling into a parking lot and about to attend a church service that doesn't include Christina Kranz. Um, it would be often that when I would pull in the driveway before the first service and pull into the parking lot, it wouldn't be unusual for me to pull in at the same time as Christina. Uh, or at some point, walking inside, I would see her as she's involved in ministry or just you know coming to attend here. And, and uh, I realized that that wasn't going to happen. And, um, and I was just remembering, you know, with fondness, her smile and, um, a heaviness hit me, you know, uh, for you, you know, maybe a month ago that hit you as you went through the calling hours and the, and the services. And of course, Heidi was here and I was in the throes of, of my sickness, which I'll talk about in a, in a moment, but, um, definitely a, a fresh heaviness that kind of blindsided me as I pulled in, um, and yet, it's, it's relevant to what I'm talking about today. You know, the Lord of the broken heart. Uh, there's a lot of things going on, I think, here uh, that can break your heart. You know, I think we're all mourning the loss of Christina and all that she meant to us. And, of course, the women's ministry that she was leading. Just such an incredible uh, well of, uh, uh, of ministry that came out of that woman uh, in her heart. And so that's a, it's a tremendous loss. Um, and, you know, that... that I think that creates a certain brokenness. You know, I saw Christina, uh, not, not Christina, uh, Cynthia and, um, and Andrew this morning and, and talked with them. And one of the things that Heidi said, who was very close to Christina, was just processing her loss. She says, you know, um, it's a strange feeling. She says, I don't know if I've ever lost someone that I've been that close to in, in a relationship. You know, she's lost a lot of different, you know, extended family members, but not anybody that she's been that close to in Christ she said, I've never lost somebody that, that close before. And she said, it actually makes me feel closer to heaven. Yes. It's a strange thing. I just feel like heaven is more real because she's there. And um, you know, so Heidi's processing you know, this loss as well. And I know as a, as a body, you are and, and will be. And maybe you've had other losses. I know I talk to a lot of people um, down there. In Tennessee and and here, I've I've had ongoing text conversations or phone calls with, you know, different people from the body here who are just struggling with what's going on in our country, struggling with what's going on in culture today, and, and that can break your heart in a certain way. Um, personally, I've had a pretty intense month, as many of you know. Almost five weeks ago, I started having strange lesions and blisters on my face. Face, quite honestly, I thought I was bitten by a spider, maybe. Um, and I went into uh, urgent care, and the nurse looked me over and looked in my ear canal and saw blisters on my eardrum and said, oh, you have shingles. And uh, it, from there, it just got worse and worse as I had lesions and blisters all down the side of my hair, face, and uh, in my ear canal. And uh, anybody who's had shingles knows how painful that can be. Uh, I started experiencing hearing loss, and, and then shingles attacks the nerve lines, and so just tremendous pain um, just radiating throughout my face and my head. And there'd be some days where, you know, the pain meds weren't helping. And I'm, you just literally sit there and you're just marking time. You're just going, okay, I know at some point in my future, I'll feel better than I do now. 
So literally, I just need to sit and watch the, watch the hand tick on the clock and move toward that moment because it's not right now. Um, and there'd be, there'd be times when I've just reduced me to tears and, you know, put me on my knees. And, and then of course, once the lesions started clearing up and, you know, I, I got on the antiviral medication and, you know, after about two weeks that cleared up, but then I had all the complications of the, uh, you know, to this day, I, I have ongoing ear, um, nerve pain in my ear. I'm on pain meds and within the hour I need to take another pill <laughs> to help me, uh, you know, get through the day. Um, but then I had the Bell's palsy on my face. I was about uh, 80% paralyzed on the left side of my face, uh, you know, practicing my pirate smile. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I had to come to a point where, you know, doctors are saying, you might get better, you might not. You know, you could be by degree, and it can take up to six months or even years for some people. And so, you know, I was speaking with, a, uh, with slurred speech and, you know, I mean, I sounded ridiculous. At, at the same time, I was still, I'm an assistant coach in my son's football team. I'm an assistant varsity coach in the wrestling program down there. Uh, I went to lead one of the practices in, in wrestling, and I said, I'm going to sound like an idiot as I try to teach you guys. Um, so just, if you, just make fun of me, and I'll feel better. Uh, but then if you just, you know, walk on eggshells around me. Um, and then thinking about preaching, I didn't know if I'd be able to come up here and preach because my speech was so slurred. I didn't want to be a spectacle up here. Um, then you get to a point where I go, okay, if this is who I am now, how do I deal with that? Does this change my career? And you get to a point where you say, uh, your grace is sufficient. You're in this. This is, this is not outside of your sovereign control and providence, and, and I trust you. And um, you're able to deliver me, but even if you don't, I will, I will follow you. And, and you have to get to that point. And this text that I'm about to read is a text that the Lord brought me back to, and I think often brings us back to the themes of this text when we suffer and when we go through pain, whether it's grieving the loss of our dear sister Christina, grieving a personal struggle, trial, or loss that you're going through, grieving what's going on in our country right now, uh, or you know any kind of pain like I've just gone through or am going through. Paul had his own trial, and, and it likely had to do with the persecution that he faced, and he often faced and knew he would face in city after city because the Lord told him he would, that that was part of the burden of his ministry. One of the first things the Lord uh, said to him uh, was, through Ananias, was, I will show him how, how many things he must suffer for my name. And so this is a passage that sort of recounts some of the suffering that Paul went through in one of his missionary journeys to Asia. And in this particular case, it was really, really bad. I don't know exactly what happened, but here's how he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He writes to the church in Corinth, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was... To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to download the themes in this text into our hearts. Help us to know what we know. Help us to experience the life of the Spirit the fellowship of your sufferings in a very real way in our suffering, in our pain. It seems that every chapter of our life, 
Lord, has this mixture of abounding and being abased. Lord, of, of knowing tremendous blessing and joy, and yet in this world that has fallen, Lord, on this journey, also knowing the struggles and trials and sufferings and pain of this life. So help us, Lord, to download the grace that's in this text into our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Paul says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And if, let me just say a couple things there. Paul doesn't mind disclosing his pain to the body. And you shouldn't mind either. I think sometimes when we're suffering, we're like, I got this. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later in this text. But look at what Paul does here. Look at the example he sets for us. He's in pain, and he's not going to hide this and try to cowboy up and struggle through this alone uh, because he's got too much pride to let anybody know what he's suffering through. He reaches out to the body. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know what's going on. And so that's a good... That's a good model for us. If you're suffering, if you're in trial, if you're in pain, it's a good model for, you, for us to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ and disclose what you're going through so that you might find grace in time of need like Paul did. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. This is family language, and it's not unusual in the gospel, is it? The gospel is full of family language. Matter of fact, I heard it said that the term disciple ceases to exist in the Bible after the book of Acts. Right? The Gospels, the disciples, the disciples, the disciples, the book of Acts, the disciples. After the book of Acts, you don't see that word at all. So does discipleship disappear? No. The word that appears is sonship. The language shifts from discipleship to sonship uh, after the book of Acts in the epistles and the writings of the apostles. Because to be a disciple is to be a son. Because of the family language that's in the gospel, it brings us into this relationship with God that is not a metaphor. Well, here's a way of thinking about it. It's actual. It's true. You are a son or a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and God loves you with family love, and he gives you his family. Yes. And so Paul writes and he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Remember, Paul was single. He never took a wife. And this word he uses refers to uh, actual biological siblings in a family. So he loves them and knows them and relates to them in the same way that someone would relate to their biological brother or sister. This is family, love, and a family relationship. And this was the only real family that Paul had. And then he describes his affliction. Here's the words he used. Utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life. We received the sentence of death. In other words, the jury's back in and the sentence has been handed down and it is execution. There's a sentence of death. This trial is similar to a sentence of death. In other words, it's final. This is over. Like there's no wondering what direction this is going to go. This has one direction and that is we, we lost and we're going to die. It was bad news. The die was cast. Paul was crushed under the weight of this, smashed, bruised, and burdened. And it's not just an external trial that he's going through because he talks about his feelings here. He's not like, oh, man, they took us to prison and we were like, bold for Jesus. He's, he's like, we literally despaired of being alive. So not only was it an external trial, it became an internal trial where he didn't want to live anymore. He wasn't suicidal, but he's just like, it'd be better if we weren't alive anymore. Have you ever been there? Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. It's not like you're going to take your own life, but you're like, Jesus, if you want to take my life, 
I'm good. I'd rather be with you. Paul was there too. So please understand, somebody who feels that way doesn't need to be corrected. That is the normative Christian experience. This idea that Christianity is just, you know, this pie in the sky, everything's good, we're blessed all the time, is not a biblical picture of the journey of the Christian. I'm not saying you live there, but I'm saying there can be times when you get there and that is normal for a Christian and that is okay and it doesn't indicate a lack of faith. It actually indicates a longing for the resurrection, a longing to be with Jesus. Now you might say, why? Why would God allow this with one of his choicest servants? I mean, Paul was not doing bad. Paul was doing good. Like, he's starting churches. I mean, he's a hero when it comes to the kingdom of God. Traveling from city to city, you know, country to country, different continents, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. Really, he was sort of the leader of a revival that was spreading among the nations of the world. So why wouldn't God be like, keep it up, Paul. I'm going to provide everything you need. Instead, he goes to this chapter where he has such a such a soul-crushing experience that he despairs of being alive. You know, you look at Joseph. Why did he have to go through what he went through? Job. This is a godly man. He's, these are good, godly people, and yet they went through these things. And you might say, as has been said, if this is how God treats his friends, I'd hate to see how God treats his enemies. <laughs> And you know, there's actually some truth to that. Because on the day of judgment, I think we're going to go, whoa. Now, why? Paul actually tells us why in the text. He actually gives reasons for why he's going through this. Because this text has this transitional phrase that transitions from the description of what he's going through uh, to the reason for what he's going through. And it's this phrase at the end of verse 9. He said, we received the sentence of death, but, yes, but that was. So he's, he's telling us why now. This transitional phrase, and he tells us, he gives us two reasons why he went through this. And the two reasons are, number one, to rely on God and not himself. It's verse 9. And verse 11, that he needed his family in Christ, and he needed a reminder of that. And maybe they did too. So let's go back to the first thing he says. He says, we received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So again, he received the sentence of death. This thing's over. It required resurrection power to get him out of it. And that's in fact what happened. Resurrection power came and delivered Paul out of this trial. But Paul had to rely on God, not himself. I think there's a tendency, especially as men, I'm talking to men because I'm a, I'm a guy and I understand that. There's a tendency to like go, I got to fix this. Where's the wrench to fix this? Where's the right tool to fix this situation? If I can just manipulate, you know, if I can turn this, this screw or, you know, turn this bolt or, you know, change this gear a little bit, I can fix this and get out of this. No, this time, Paul, you cannot fix it. There is no tool in the toolbox to fix this. The only thing you can do is realize there's nothing you can do and rely on God who raises the dead. Rely on God and not yourself. I don't think we know or really grasp how deep our, our addiction is and our 
our tendency is to self-salvation. It is so ingrained in us from the fall of our sin nature to reject God as the source and as the resource and as the center and to immediately shift back to ourselves. So here's a guy now, Paul, who wrote half the New Testament and also describes this experience of seeing what he called the third heaven. I don't even know what that is, but he had this vision where he saw it. So he wrote half the New Testament, visited the third heaven, and yet God designed a trial for him to remind him that he needed to trust God like a nursing child on his mother's breast. In John 15, Jesus talks about the relationship that we have with him using the picture of the branch and the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean, he said to his disciples, because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, if you go on my Facebook, I've had this on my Facebook for years. In my bio, I, all I said was, Jesus is my everything and I am my nothing. That's the math, right? <laughs> isn't it? That's, that's good gospel math, isn't it? I mean, if Jesus and might we sing, you're my everything. Okay, great. Think, what, what does that mean for you then? What does that leave for you? If Jesus is your everything, you're all in all, then you are your none and none. And you are your nothing. So let's boast in that. That's a good gospel boast. If I'm going to brag about my piety, and my, you know, my, my religion, then I'm going to brag about this. I'm nothing, and he's everything. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. He's the vine. I'm the branch. My hope and your hope is in him. Rely on him who raises the dead. So when it comes to biblical faith, real biblical faith, it's really not about the presence of faith itself. It's about the object of your faith. Now, I'm going to make, that's an important distinction to make because there's some really bad teaching out there that ultimately terminates on the idea of faith in faith. Not faith in Jesus, but faith in faith. How big can you make your faith? How strong can you make your faith? Because that's how good your life's going to go. And then, you know, the, the worst versions of that are, you know, the prosperity, health and wealth, name it and claim it gospels that are out there. And there's a lot of that on TV, by the way. But it's not about my faith. It's about the object of my faith. And listen, Jesus accepts very, very weak faith, like the thief on the cross, as much as he accepts strong faith, and it accomplishes the same thing in the end. A few years back, I was on an airplane traveling to Turkey with a team of about 10 people. One of those guys is named Bob Dale, who is an experienced missionary to Turkey. He's one of our team leaders. Uh, as we were going to Turkey with our uh, music group to do a multi-city uh, tour with Christian music and use that as a platform to share Christ. And so we're on a plane, and, and we, we were, our seats were all over the place. So we were sort of mixed among the, the people in the cabin. And my friend Bob was next to a woman, a uh, Turkish woman, who was terribly anxious about the flight. Every time there would be turbulence, she'd be like, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. So he, he, he grabbed her hand, you're going to be okay. And it, it just got worse as the flight went on. It's a long flight over the Atlantic. And eventually he said to her, he goes, listen, I'm going to tell you something. 
He goes, and, and she, she was actually a, a Christian as well, a new Christian. There's not many of them in Turkey, so that was a miracle in itself that she sat next to him on the plane. And so he goes, you see that guy over there? Yeah, he's on my team. See that guy? Yep, he's on my team. And he showed her all the people on the team. And he goes, listen, Jesus told us to go to your country and preach the gospel. Okay? This plane is going to land in Turkey. <laughs> and yet, at the end of the day, Bob had strong faith and she had weak faith. Was, there, was their faith level relevant at all? when it came to whether or not the plane was going to land? Did the fact that Bob had strong faith make the plane go, but, you know, assure that the plane was going to get over the ocean? Or did the fact that she had weak faith threaten the plane crashing into the ocean? Actually, the level of their faith was irrelevant. They both had enough faith to get on that plane, to step on that plane, okay? Even though she had weak faith and he had strong faith, they both got on. Ultimately, all that mattered was the plane and the pilot. How good they felt on the ride across the Atlantic. She could have completely uh, decided this plane's going to crash in the ocean. So? It, it didn't matter. What am I saying? I'm saying that God accepts weak faith and strong faith and weak faith because it's ultimately about the object of faith, not about the faith itself. The presence of faith is important. We're saved by grace through faith. But the, whether or not you feel weak or strong... All that really matters is Jesus. All that really matters is what happened on the cross and that your trust is in him. And you can be trembling and Jesus accepts you as much as the person who is boldly sitting next to you on the plane saying, we're going to be fine. He accepts it all. And what God is telling Paul in this trial when it came to the final conclusion that they'd receive the sentence of death, this thing is out of control, uh, our control, I can't fix it. God steps in And he says, I want you to rely on me. And the first thing Paul sees is, God is really saying, I'm sovereign. I'm in charge of this. I control your destiny, not this trial. I control your destiny, not that person or this wicked person or this difficult person in your life or this person that you think took an opportunity away from you. They don't control your destiny. I control your destiny. I'm in charge of your life. I'm sovereign and I'm working providence into your life. Revisit those definitions. Sovereignty is God's right to rule. And providence is God's wise and prudent use of his sovereignty. In other words, yes, God is sovereign and in control, but he's also good. And he uses his sovereignty in a way that is wise and prudent and good for you and for his glory. For years growing up, I would hear people pray that God would set a hedge of protection around, you know, people, especially as they're traveling. You know, Lord, I just pray you set a hedge of protection around them. And as I've studied the scriptures, I've come to realize that you don't actually need to pray for that. It's already there. That if you're in Christ, there's already a hedge of protection around you because God loves you and he's your father and he protects you. Well, why do bad things happen? God is the gatekeeper of the hedge. And you can be sure that anything that gets through that gate, he allows for his glory and your good. And not only that, but God controls the duration of the trial, the frequency of the trial, the pace of the trial, he controls all of it. He knows, he knows how to, he knows how to take that pain and take that trial and go that that's enough. Stop. Or he knows how to leave it for a time and go, I'm going to, it's, it's working something in them. 
and I'm going to allow it for my glory and for my glory in them. And so that's, what, that's one of the things that was going on with Paul. He says this trial came that to make us. It's, it's not a picture of like, hmm, should we rely on God? It's like God in his sovereignty just kind of pushed them to the vine. And that's, that's what happens in John 15 with the, with the vine and the branches, isn't it? When you cut a branch, the branch has to move to the vine to get sustenance or it dies. And that's exactly what happened. He said he, ma- he made us rely on him. So this, this cutting happened through this trial. And, and all the branches go, oh, we need God. Oh, I need the vine. Oh, I need his sustenance. I need the trunk. I need Jesus. That's what was going on. That's the first lesson for him and for us. The second lesson is that he needed his family in Christ. Paul says, you also must help us. You see that? He's reaching out for help. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Okay, so here's this guy, wrote half the Bible, saw the third heaven, and he still needed who in his mind might be brother boring and sister ordinary. This hero of faith still needed his family in Christ. He couldn't do it alone. You know, I know that this phrase, this idea is often taught in this church, and that is that uh, God's people are a means of grace. And and the phrase that's often used here is that uh, God provides an ordinary means of grace. What does that mean? That there's very simple, mundane things that the Bible tells us to do that aren't like flashy or remarkable, but when you do them, they're a means of grace in your life on repeat. Gathering with God's people, reading the scriptures and you know, digesting the gospel, meditating on the scriptures, prayer, right? fellowship. That's all an ordinary means of grace. That's, that's the way that God ministers to you often and brings grace into your life is through other people. That's why I feel bad for, for people who leave the church that are Christians because they just don't want to be around difficult people. And I'm like, ah, you've left your best friends. I know it's messy, right? I know that there are offenses. I know those things happen. I'm not, I'm not uh, minimizing that. But it's also so worth it to push through all that because that's a means of grace in our lives. You don't have to be close to everybody, but we all need a small community of people within the greater community of the body that that we know and are known by so that we can receive that ordinary ordinary means of grace, like Paul, that he needed his family in Christ, that we can say to them, hey, I, I don't want you to be unaware of what's going on in my life, brother, sister. You need to help me by prayer. Prayer is one of the most loving things you can do for your brother or sister in Christ. And I've always found it so interesting that this is how God works. Yes, we can receive grace in a certain way in our private, personal relationship with the Lord that's uninterrupted by some some outside force. But the way God's designed it is that a good part of the grace that we receive comes through his people. I always think of the burning bush. Moses sees this sight and God speaks to him and he says, I've heard the cry of my people in Egypt. And Moses is probably like, yeah, me me too, right? It's terrible. Do something about it. And God's like, I've come down to deliver them. Moses is probably like, that's what I'm saying. God goes, I'm sending you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You see the connection? I've heard their cry. I'm sending you. 
I'm going to deliver them through you. Moses became a means of grace for the people of Israel. And that's how God does it. God, speak to me. Make yourself real to me. And the phone rings. <laughs> or, I, or I go to church and I hear a message that just hit, hits. Hit, it hits. That's, that's how God does it. When people ask for deliverance, oftentimes God sends a person. And yet we live in an age and a culture of radical individualism. The sovereignty of self is the religion of our country. And human spirit is preached as our greatest resource. That's what's preached every graduation ceremony in every public school every year in May and June. You've got this. We're the greatest class ever. We're going to go take the world. Just cowboy up and believe in yourself and and just get up and, and do it. And at some point we break down and we realize that we can't do it alone. We're not an island unto ourselves. We are fallen. And God welcomes us to a family. A family that loves us and can build us up and encourage us and minister to us. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. He didn't say, I will save Paul and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. I will save Peter and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul needed his brothers and sisters in Christ and so do you. And maybe you're going, hold on. Are you telling me that Paul didn't know this? Are you telling me he didn't know these things? That he didn't know that he needed to rely on God? I mean, that's his doctrine. Paul was the apostle of grace. Are you telling me he didn't know that he needed the body of Christ when this guy is building churches and preaching the body of Christ as a, as a means of grace? What kind of learning is this if he's learning something he already knows? You and I both know there's a deeper learning, isn't there? He's, the things he's known are sinking in deeper. You can know, and then you can know. And sometimes we need to know what we know. And Paul is, again, learning what he knows. And it's becoming real in his life. We get this, don't we? You know, as I pulled into the driveway today here, I've known our sister is with the Lord, Christina, and yet the weight and the reality of it hits me in a way that it didn't before. And now I was knowing what I already knew in a deeper way. That's why we attend calling hours and funerals, to help us know what we know and to help us process that. You know, it's like on our wedding day. You know, how many guys, when the bride comes into the room and they see their bride, does it just hit them? They knew they were going to get married for, for months and months. Why weren't they prepared for this moment? Why are they shocked and crying? Because they suddenly know what they know. Now, hopefully they knew that they were getting married, right? I mean, what guy is up for, wait, wait a second. What's going on here? <laughs> is he going to marry me? <laughs> no, he, he knew he was, the, the, the groom is knowing what he knows in that moment. I'm going to marry her. She's, she's mine and we're going to have our lives together. Right? It's just, it's just the beauty of deeper knowledge. And that's what's happening here. I remember when I was a younger man, one of my friends from high school, one of my buddies that was one of my teammates, I heard that he was in a terrible accident. And would you come? And I drove to the hospital. And the way that it worked out was I pulled into the ER parking lot and the door, the big sliding door of the ER was open. And as I got out of the car, I could hear my friend shrieking in agony and pain. And then I really knew that what they said 
was true. And it's just this weight hits you. That's what's happening. Paul, the apostle of grace, is learning grace. Paul, the apostle of establishing churches in the Gentile world that would be made up of the body of Christ that he himself wrote so beautifully about is learning that he needs the body of Christ and that the body of Christ is beautiful and he needs their help. It's like sometimes we say, I believed, but now I believe. And this is what's happening with him. And so he's learning how to walk through this trial, leaning on his brothers and sisters in Christ and, and their prayers, that in the end they would all celebrate as well. And yet as we consider Paul walking through this trial with the companionship of his brothers and sisters in Christ, and you walking through your trial with the companionship of your brothers and sisters and friends in Christ, let's remember that Jesus went through his suffering alone. Let's remember that he was betrayed by his closest friends. And then on a cross... He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was utterly alone. If you want to talk about, like, the weight of loneliness, deep down to the bottom part of your soul and your heart, hitting you in a way that creates despair, that was Christ Jesus. My God, my God, even you have forsaken me. Why? Unlike Paul, unlike you and me, Jesus suffered alone so that we wouldn't have to. And you may remember the part of the story of the crucifixion where they plunged a spear into his side and blood and water flowed. Medically, that's a picture of a ruptured heart. So you could literally say that Jesus died of a broken heart. Jesus is the Lord of the broken heart. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He knows what it's like to have a broken heart. And this Lord of the broken heart comes to us not as one who simply looks on with sympathy, but one who looks on with empathy. As a pastor, I've often come into an emergency room or come into a situation that is just so terrible that I have no, I have no logical explanation for why God would allow this. Why? Why would God allow this? How does this glorify God? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know. There's a thousand reasons why God does what he does, and we will know, but I don't know right now. But what I do know is that the scripture says that Jesus suffered as we did in all manner and yet without sin. And so we have a, a Savior, we have a Lord who comes alongside, not as one who sympathizes, but as one who actually understands human pain, he understands relational betrayal, he understands human loneliness and human physical pain. And he comes alongside of us in our suffering, and he, and he comes as one who empathizes immediately. And that is what I can offer. And that is what you can offer, too. If you have a friend or someone who's going through a trial that you don't understand, you, you have no words for what they're going through, just remind them. We have a Savior who does know. We have a Savior who suffered and understands your pain in a way that I never could. And he, he's with you right now. And he's going to walk you through this. And I'm praying for you. Jesus died of a broken heart. He's the Lord of the broken heart. 
Not only is he sovereign over your trial and pain, he's Lord also in the sense that he understands it. Isaiah 57, 15, I'm going to finish with this. It says that God dwells in the high heaven and with a lowly and contrite heart to revive the heart of the humble. I just love that verse so much. And it's shocking, isn't it? It tells you the two geographies where God lives. And the two geographies where God lives, you know, in, in Isaiah 57, 15 at least, is in the high heaven, enthroned in the high heaven, and the other place is with the broken and lowly and contrite. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. Got, God lives in this glorious, heavenly place beyond death's door, beyond death's death veil, a, a glory that we can't even conceive in our minds, and also with a broken heart. That's where God lives. Notice it doesn't say, God dwells in the high heaven and with the perfect heart. God dwells in the high heaven and with the blameless heart. The one who's really kept all the rules and really, really a godly person. No. The one who lives in the high heaven and with a beautiful heart. I'm attracted to your heart. No, no language like that here. It's not there. No perfect, blameless, beautiful heart. God dwells in the high heaven and with the lowly heart, the contrite heart, the repentant heart, the broken heart. And so my encouragement to you today is go to him again. Turn to him. You will find a father who will never leave you or forsake you and who can come alongside your heart in a way that I can't explain. I don't know how he does it. But he lets you know that everything's okay because he's okay. And you're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And his future is also your future. So regardless of what we're going through, I think it's always the same lesson. And it's simple. Rely on God and not yourself. Reject and flee from self-salvation. And turn to him and put all your hope in him, whether your faith is weak or strong. Put your hope on him. And number two, learn to lean on the body. Remove, remove the obstacles that keep you from interacting with that means of grace in the body of Christ. Make that call that you don't want to make and say, I want you to know what's going on. On the other side, maybe you're doing well. Make the call and say, hey, what's going on? You've been on my heart. Text that text. Get in the car and drive over there. It's worth it. It ministers to people. It's how God ministers to people. It's not a small thing. It is the body. It is the family of God. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I want you to think about that picture. What does it mean to bear a burden? Except that you actually slide under it and feel it a little bit with them. Let's learn to do that. And in doing so, we act like Jesus. We fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray today for all those that are grieving and suffering in any way and in every way, Lord. Even the, the, the church-wide suffering that's going on right now as we grieve the loss of our dear sister, Christina, and the, even the loss of her ministry among us, uh, Lord, the, the way that she would minister one-on-one every single week, the way that she would minister to the body through the women's ministry, Lord, we, we do grieve that. We thank you that she's with you, and we remember the scripture that says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Father, we pray 
that uh, your grace would work through her story among us in that way. And help us, Lord, in our trials to rely on God and not ourselves. And to see your resurrection power working in us and your comfort until it does. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to learn to walk in stride and rhythm with the body. Help us to learn to work through our offenses in a godly, constructive way. Help us to lean in, not lean out. When fight or flight kicks in, Lord, help us to fight the good fight of faith, not to flee, but to fight the good fight of faith and work through our pain and work through our trials, work through uh, our offenses, that the world would see that we love one another because we're yours. We're your sons and daughters. We thank you for the fatherly love you give us today. Help us to feel it now by your Holy Spirit as we close in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.